it, I should be the change. Ain't no doubt about it, you should be the change. Ain't no way around it if you're tired of the same. You wanna make a difference, you should be the change. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, oh, oh. The 2020 election is an election that could define the next couple of generations for Americans. With 435 congressional house seats, 35 U.S. Senate seats, 13 governorships, including two in U.S. territories, among the numerous judgeships, mayoralships, and the presidency, the stakes have never been higher. With so much at stake on the ballot, it is important that we as African Americans work to ensure that our elected leaders support and advocate for policies that benefit our communities. Today, Fran Harris moderates a panel on what we as Black Americans need to know about the 2020 election at the city, state, and national level. Hi everybody, Fran Harris, alum of Texas 1987-91 and, and also 2018. Great to be here with you again. And tonight we have an esteemed panel of folks who are here to ignite, one reason to ignite us around the vote. That doesn't mean that they all have the same opinion about what should happen, but I know based on what I'm looking at that this is going to be a fiery panel and everybody's gonna leave here with their to-dos and ignition to go and make 2020 and beyond a better, a better year and a situation for African-Americans. So welcome everybody. We have today Demetra Sampson, who is a board chair of the Zan Wesley Holmes Jr. Community Outreach Center. Professionally, she served as managing partner of the Dallas office of Linebarger, Goggin, Blair, and Sampson LLP. So she practiced for nearly 27 years and was a chairperson of the firm's management committee. We move to Dr. Tracy Lowe. Dr. Tracy A. Lowe is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Texas at Austin for IUPRA. Her research focuses on the experiences of black students in higher education with a particular focus on Black women graduate students. Representative Cheryl Cole, as Mayor Pro Tem and the city's first African-American woman elected to city council, Cheryl Cole led a coalition of community advocacy and service groups to place a new affordable housing package on the ballot to address affordability issues and mounting economic and racial divides. Austin voters stepped up this time, passing the bond package with a 61% of the vote. And finally, Sharon Watkins, Sharon Watkins Jones is a Houston-based seasoned professional in public affairs and community relations with legislative, public speaking, and managerial experience since 1987. She is a former community college administrator, serving as liaison to state associations, area chambers of commerce, trade associations, and local public districts. Welcome, ladies, and I'm gonna kick this off tonight by asking a very important and hopefully controversial question. Why is everyone tabbing 2020 as the most important election in our generation? And I will start with Sharon Jones. Why are we <laughs> doing that? Oh gosh, there are a number of reasons. Um, unfortunately, COVID-19 has, has penetrated our every thought, every movement, and this election season, um, has been affected by this pandemic that we're in as well. And so just the government's reaction to the pandemic and response, whether you like what's happening or not, you know that this is really important for what we're involved in right now with this pandemic. Also, because of the pandemic, the way that we vote is heavily affected. You know, there are people who are not comfortable leaving their homes. There are people who want to vote by mail, whether or not they meet the criteria that the state outlines. There are people who um, are in areas where the lines are going to be long and the contact is going to be scary for some. And so this year is just going to be unlike any other. And you know, for that reason, it probably is the most important voting cycle of our lifetime. Tracy? I'd say that with this election cycle, COVID-19, as Sharon just talked about, has really highlighted a lot of the disparities that are happening, particularly for the African-American community. So we're talking about issues of health. We're talking about issues of job, um, job security and unemployment. So uh, all of these issues are important and they're all on the ballot. So when we talk about these local ballots, when you have local elections for your state legislatures, 
um, these legis legislative bodies coming up in 2021, we're doing redistricting. So it's really important for us to consider who we're putting in these positions as they're drawing these district lines. And this will determine a lot of the future policies that are made. So in terms of policy, I think 2020 is big because people are understanding that policies are going to be made in the future and who we put in these positions now will hold the keys to our futures and eliminating these disparities among black communities. Okay, Cheryl? Well, number one, we're in the middle of a Supreme Court appointment that will change the face of the court for a long, long time in a 6-3 vote. And we need to win back the Senate to be able to have any hopes of stopping that appointment as Democrats. And then the second thing is winning back the Senate is huge because if we win the presidency, we keep the House and we get the Senate, then we finally have all three prongs of our federal government, which could change legislation for a long, long time, not to mention a Supreme Court appointment. And then on the statewide basis, we have another a number of legislative races that are in play on a party-wide basis. A lot of times we have, you know, uh, a particular district at issue but when you have a national election that will impact Congress and impact state elections and congressional elections, it's huge. And I agree with everybody else. The pandemic is, is a big factor. The um, presidential election is a big factor. And we've never seen, I don't think, this much um, laying on the line as far right as we are. So you know that there was a finding that our number one national security interest was from domestic terrorism. So that's on the far right of the spectrum. So that also is hanging. So we have a lot this time. Okay, and Demetrius, what are your thoughts? Why is this being tabbed the, the most important election of our generation? Well, I wanna answer that question first. Let me give a disclaimer. Uh, I'm not here as the board chair of the Zan Wesley Holmes Junior Community Outreach Center. I retired from a law firm in 2014, so I want to put some distance between me and those organizations because I might say some things that uh, if I'm going to be truthful and forthright, that those organizations uh, are not allowed to say. Okay. And part because, you know, some one of them is a nonprofit organization and they don't take political stances. So I want to be sure I get the disclaimers on that everything I'm saying is just me. Okay. Okay. Now, um, I think every uh, generation thinks that what's happening in that generation's time span is the most important thing that ever happened. Uh, and so given that, um, you know, those of us who are my age and have experienced everything from a range of Democrats being in control uh, in the state of Texas um, on a national level to Republicans being in control in the state of Texas on a national level. We see it from um, a perspective of what happened during the time that those groups were in control. And what happened uh, with reference to our ability to influence that. So for example, uh, you know, was there a Voting Rights Act that was active in effect and enforceable? Uh, were there people who were in positions of uh, enforcement, such as in a justice department, uh, that could uh, come in and affirmatively uh, protect you? So we, we have voting taking place, but it's taking place under um, ID laws that are the most restrictive ID laws anywhere in the country, in the state of Texas, um, in terms of um, uh, protections such as whether you can change polling places, whether you can take up mailboxes, whether you can do the things that impact a person's ability to even cast a vote. So it's important that we know who's, who we're voting for. And if you're a person that believes in political parties and you, know, you cast a straight ticket ballot or whatever, it's important for you to know that as well but it's the, the mechanics of how you vote and the obstacles that you run into are, have, we've gone backwards with that. 
we had gotten to a point where we could challenge those things on a regular basis at the Department of Justice because they had to get clearance mm -hmm. before they could change those types of things. They don't have to get clearance anymore because the Voting Rights Act was gutted and not upheld by a Supreme Court that is more conservative than it was before. So uh, I, that's my kind of take on why this is an important election. Sure, there are other things that are important. The economy is important. Having somebody who uh, understands differences in people and, and celebrates diversity is important. In any office, the highest office in the land are the gubernatorial offices or the ones at your local level. But the fundamental building blocks of how a person gets to influence what happens to his or her life in a political atmosphere, all of those things are being challenged right now. Okay, let's jump to, let's take a step back to some of the discussion that we're seeing on social and great insights about whether this is significant, whether the race is significant and why it's significant. But what people are talking a lot about, and I'm seeing a lot of discussion about is whether voting is a right that you should exercise or if it's a privilege that you should, you know, maybe be flippant about it. I'm seeing a lot of conversation on social media about, eh, maybe I will vote, maybe I won't vote. So let's jump into that and talk about, you know, your personal feeling about whether voting is something we, and I do mean black folks, should be doing and why we should be doing it, or if it's something like, hey, you know what, exercise your right not to do that. Let's start with you, Tracy. I'll say for me personally, uh, voting is a right. And I think that it's something that uh, black people should be pursuing. I know that ever since I was younger, the the uh, the right to vote and the, the importance of voting was specifically demonstrated to be by my mom. And that's because she was very active in um, reading, very active in helping me understand kind of how the mechanics of being black in America works. And there are, she gets frustrated because there are a lot of people in her neighborhood that she feels doesn't want to go out to vote or that they feel it's not necessary. I've even had peers that are like, what is my vote going to matter? And I'm like, oh, in terms of thinking about the larger election and how they say the electoral college is the one that really does all the work, it's like, no, and voting is important because at the local level, they're making decisions that affect your daily life. So we're looking at these local elections and we're looking at the people that are elected for city council. We're looking at these county judges. We're looking at attorneys and we're looking at the people who are running our school districts. Education for black communities, especially in thinking about Austin, is not necessarily serving African American students. Right. So if you if you're under if you're wondering like what why should I vote, go out and get educated on who they're putting in to onto these school boards because you have the option to choose. And this this affects the decisions that are made for your child in terms of education. So looking at it from like a national perspective and feeling powerless, I can understand that. But at these state and these local elections, that's where we really need to get in and vote because we can change and make decisions that impact our daily lives in terms of when we're thinking about everything from how much, how, where your tax money is going. When you wanna know all of the taxes that you pay into the system, where are those taxes going? Where, what are they doing with my investments in the community? Because right now we are, they, we are, there are disparities. We aren't, we are seeing residential segregation. We're not afforded the same opportunities. So I feel that every chance that you have to express your right to vote, to, to change these things that impact your life mm -hmm. on a daily basis is important. Darren? Voting is a right, but I think black folks need to treat it as a responsibility. There's just too much at stake. And I think a lot of eyes were opened with the Breonna Taylor case and the district attorney who had the power to uh, decide what he would present to a grand jury to consider. Um, most folks don't think about the attorney, the district attorney, uh, or I think they call it an attorney general in Kentucky um, until they're faced with a situation where it's their family member who needs justice or their family member who needs a second chance. And so um, we have to open our eyes to the fact that everything from the top to the bottom of the ballot matters in our daily lives. And we have a responsibility to make those choices because if we don't vote and we don't make those choices, those choices will be made for us and we have to live with them. Demetrius? Voting is just like breathing. You know, you, you have to vote in order to survive. Someone mm -hmm. else is going to make decisions for you if you don't. To me, it's just that simple. And, and it baffles me that there are folks who cannot see that. But I know that there are folks who cannot yeah. see it. I really cannot 
defend anybody's uh, decision to decide to avoid voting. Sure, what do you think? I think voting is both a right and a privilege. We know that we had the Voting Rights Act and without it, we wouldn't have the right to vote. And that's especially true for African-Americans. It's a privilege because we didn't always have that right, but also we get to vote in a country where we have free elections and pretty much it's not, you don't have the level of voter intimidation that you've seen in other countries. And we have had pretty fair elections. I know this time the question is up because the president is saying that we won't necessarily have an orderly transfer of power. But that is unusual and it's garnering that amount of attention because it is unusual. In fact, presidents in the past, when there has been a change of power, they've actually shook hands, got in the same vehicle, went to the White House right. and had you know that representation of a united country i don't know what is going on now that ain't happening that ain't happening that ain't happening you know great great insights i think about whenever i'm kind of disenfranchised with what's happening with us just to be candid what how we're you know showing up in the world i think about the the old lady who was walking with dr king and those guys during the civil rights um, era and he was telling her to get in the car. You're old, you know, you shouldn't be walking. You got to get in the car. And she says, I ain't walking for myself. I'm walking for my kids. I'm walking for my grandkids. And I think that, and I feel that every time I'm like done with us, <laughs> you know, I'm like, you know what, we got to do better. And, but you know what, I'm not doing this for me. And I really don't feel that as, as a people, there's that general sense of we're not, we need to pass this on to generations that come after us and i think about what we just heard in the media recently with ice cube and those guys saying you know we can't be bought we're not going to be you're not going to just get our vote let's turn our attention to to that and if you're not familiar with what's happening rapper ice cube has said black folks withhold your vote until they put something on the table that says they're going to do certain things for us that's essentially the paraphrasing of what ice cube has said how do you guys feel about that? I think that's pretty ignorant. And I love Ice Cube's music. I grew up with it. And and what I what I need for him to understand and folks who are following him is that a no vote is still a vote. Mm -hmm. So when you choose not to vote, you're allowing someone else to, to decide your, your future. Whether or not everything you want is on the table, um, you're going to get what somebody else wants if you don't if you don't vote. Yep. Anybody else? And it's also not just about what we have to gain. We have to think about what we have to lose. I mean, the rights that we have now, we have not always had them and they can be taken away. The right to uh, education, the right to work wherever we want to work, the right to go into restaurants, that's all at issue. Well, I think the threshold question is, who is the they? Mm -hmm. You don't don't vote until they put something on the table. Who is they? Right. That's the whole point it's of the vote. Mm -hmm. The whole point of the vote is that to determine who they, who the they will be. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's about as idiotic as is um, uh, Kanye West and deciding that whether or not you're going to go vote for somebody that basically is throwing away what you what your vote is. It just mm -hmm. it doesn't make it so so. The threshold question is, what part are you trying to influence? He's all, all the way on the end of, I want something and somebody's got to give me something and um, I'm expecting something. I want to be on the end of defining what the something is mm -hmm. and defining who's sitting at the table to decide what the something is. And I don't think that that's where he is. But I like his music. <laughs> Today was a good day. <laughs> uh -huh. Um, you know, what's interesting about that is he, he put his kind of his to-do list on the table, right? So here are the things we want. Here are the things that we need to be asking. Um, but if we go back, I had a conversation this morning about whether we really understand whether our vote, how our vote counts. And so, I mean, that's a conversation I'm having with extremely educated to, to undereducated Black folks. Why should I vote? Like, how does this actually work? And I'm literally talking about the logistics of voting. How can we do a better job of educating us about that? Because there are two things there. There is the 
do I count and therefore I need to vote? Meaning as a black person or whatever you are, do I count? Do I believe I count enough and therefore I'm encouraged and empowered to vote? And then there is, does this even matter? You know, how does this actually work? How can we do a better job of educating our community on the vote? I'll take that question. Great. I, I say um, the same ways that they're getting this information from Ice Cube and Kanye West, social media, I say those are the same platforms that we need to infiltrate with information on about, about how the process works. Because we know where people are getting what uh, our uh, Donald Trump would call fake news. We need to use those same platforms to make sure that we have people on there who are monitoring these things and sending out this information. So like even on TV, shows called like Blackish, and, and helping people understand the history of voting. Those are ways to reach younger people. I've seen uh, young people do TikToks. I've seen young people doing like whole music videos. I've seen a lot of that that is emerging to help people understand what these processes are. And so for me, I think if we're reaching the younger generation, those are the ways to reach them because we're consumed by social media. I think there's a there's a um, documentary on Netflix called or social, uh, social it's, it's something about facebook but these these social things dilemma. are the social dilemma. dilemma yes these systems are set up to dictate your dictate everything from your mood and what you see so figuring out how these systems work the youth are great technology so figuring out how to use that same system to educate i, I believe is a good way to, to reach populations yeah those are some good points anybody else on that I think we need to do a better job too of teaching advocacy. So what do you do after you vote? How do you hold your elected officials accountable? And how can you contribute to laws that are made by picking up your phone or sending a text to your senator or writing a letter or showing up at their office? And you know, how do you how do you um, you know take your vote and and move your ideas into into law? We need to do a better job of teaching folks how to how to follow up on that vote and how to how to make sure that things that they want done by their elected officials are actually done. And I know uh, Representative Cole can can speak to that a little bit about you know how folks can show up and 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 help to educate her as well of the things that are important to them. And you know it's a it's a two way street. I think our elected officials want to hear from us and want to know what's important to us after we put them in office. Do you, Cheryl? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, maybe so. No, we. I spend a lot of time talking to constituents, and that's what I'm there for, to listen and make action. I was going to say that one of the main ways that right in this time that we can help people see the importance of voting is to understand from George Floyd to Breonna Taylor to every officer involved shooting that was questionable, that those are tied specifically to laws and the people who are elected. So it doesn't make any sense at all for you to say that you disagree with the George Floyd incident or you don't support what's happening to Breonna Taylor and you don't feel educated to vote. I mean, those incidents alone, if you just looked up anybody's record with criminal justice, you would know where they stand. And if that's important to you, you would know right. how to vote. But do we really put those those two things together, right? Do we put those two things together? We've all seen a lot of outrage by what's happening to us in the streets, but then are we making the connection between that and what you just said, Cheryl, which is there's a law, there's something connected to what just happened that you're so mad about. Are we making that connection or are we just mad and in the streets and holding up signs? Well, I know that we're mad and in the streets and holding up signs. We will see <laughs> at this election yeah. to what extent we actually participate but I think that's part of the job that we have, everybody on this call, and not only elected officials, but maybe in particular elected officials, is to make that connection. I mean, the uh, Black Legislative Caucus is rolling out a bill called the George Floyd Act, where we will address many of those criminal justice issues in this legislative session. And there are members of that caucus that are up for re-election and are having a tough time. So knowing that they are supporters of the Legislative Black Caucus and the George Floyd Act that will, you know, have training for officers, de-escalation provisions yep. and ban and chokeholds, that all those things are things that you're marching for and you need to support the candidates that will do something about it. Great. Demetrius, did you have anything on that? Well, I just think that um, it's kind of hard to uh, have folks understand we didn't always even have the ability to have a person in office. Yep. 
So the history of I can influence this if I elect this person um, has come a long way to get to the point where we could actually elect a person where we had systems or uh, structure in place that allowed us to put a person in office who could represent our interests. Yes. Uh, that goes back to whether you know you have single member districts. Do you have at large seats? How do you uh, draw the lines when every 10 years when redistricting uh, takes place? Do you respond to the census so that you have the numbers to support the lines that need to be drawn? So, so much of it is um, a lack of understanding of how the dots connect and that none of this happens by accident. Now, there are people who do understand it and those people are the ones who have enacted the, the, the laws and the regulations to keep us from exercising our power. There are people who very well understand it um, and they know that they have to do, get to the fundamental crux of where our power is in order to keep us from exercising. It's, it's, you know, to me, who you put in office is, is not nearly as important right now, is the structure in which you have to participate mm -hmm. to put the people in office. Mm -hmm. Because if the structure doesn't exist that allows you to elect representatives of your choosing, it doesn't matter who runs, because you don't have uh, uh, the ability to put a person in, period. Right. That you want to have put in. That's why redistricting is going to be so important in the upcoming legislative session. That's why the census is important right now. Well, who's who's fighting the census? Who, who doesn't want people counting the census? Right. You know, the state of California appropriated a couple of hundred million dollars to be sure everybody got counted. Mm -hmm. The great state of Texas appropriated zero. Because the people who have to be counted and who are moving here and who will cause the, the shift of power are not the folks that they want to go, that they want to draw, draw right. lines for. Right, right. Um, one of the things on the agenda Victoria put on was the redrawing of district lines. Anybody want to tackle that and the significance of that for this upcoming election? Well, if we talk about the most important issue affecting African-Americans, I think that is it. I mean, there was a time in the last, we always have a fight protecting our seats. And that fight doesn't just come from Republicans, it comes from Democrats. Mm -hmm. So it's a cross-party issue when it comes to African-American seats. And if you think it's important that you have African-American representation, you have to comply with that census and you have to pay attention when things are going on at the legislature. Um, that not only uh, you know, impacts the funding, it also impacts the actual people that you will have representing you. I participated in the redistricting uh, struggle fight on a couple of levels and, and over a course of three, about three decades. Um, the area in Dallas uh, that I live in is, is the 30th Congressional District. It's represented by an African-American woman who is Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson. Mm -hmm. But the, the Houston area had a congressperson 20 years before, an African-American congressperson 20 years before the Dallas area did. And that's because uh, there was a fight among Democrats as to whether or not to retain uh, two uh, progressive, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, Democrats or create a district where an African-American for sure could be elected, but the, the drawing of that district might take away some of the black people that would be placed in districts that had elected these two progressive Democrats. And that was the struggle that took place the decade before Dallas finally got a district. So Dallas didn't get an African-American district, uh, congressional district, uh, when Houston already had one. Mm -hmm. So fast forward to what was just stated uh, about this is, this is an inter-party fight sometimes, in, inter-party between uh, the Republicans and the and Democrats, and intra-party between Democrats who 
have to decide who's going to go down and represent. Mm -hmm. Are we going to be all packed into uh, districts? Are we going to be split up between, you know, uh, competing interests in districts? Are you going to pair African-American women against each other so you can salvage some Anglo man? You know, I mean, what's, what's going to happen when you draw those lines? And then you have other constituencies that have to be considered. You have Latinos who have to be considered. Right. Okay. And they don't, in many instances, particularly on a local level, are not necessarily concentrated enough that you can, you know, say, here's this big concentration of people and therefore I can draw these lines in such a way that I create a district for them. They're more dispersed than we are in many instances. And that's, that's, came into play when the lines were drawn for the city of Dallas um, in the structure that exists right now. And so it's a, it's, it's can, it's going to be a mess. It is going to be a mess. It's going to be a mess. I think what, what frightens uh, some folks about this redistricting process is the fact that, um, you know, these suburban neighborhoods are a lot different than they were before. I mean, even in, in Houston, I'm looking at, at a district 138 in, in in Houston, which is which is the Katy corridor, that typically has been all white, all uh, all male Republicans get sent to the state house, and we're looking at Akila Basie within a stone's throw of winning that district, and she's an African American female, and so this is going to be really scary for some folks to to take a look at these neighborhoods because there there are some assumed districts that are representative of, of black and Hispanic, but now those assumptions are, are you know, thrown to the wind in some areas as, as a result of, of where we live now. So that's, I just think it's going to be really ugly. You, you, you've, the three of you have said the word, you know, concern and these, this is going to be a mess and those kinds of things. And are we, has the come up, has our come up over the last 40, 50 years you know, meaning our economic progression, our ability to, to, you know, start our own businesses, become million and billionaires, whatever. Has the come up made us less interested in the struggle of black folks? And we can't go around the table for this because I, I just feel when I was five years old, I felt like I was in the struggle. I felt like my parents knew what was going on. I felt like my community knew what was going on. There was a lot of meeting. There was a lot of conversations in the church and the community. I don't sense that now. I don't, I don't feel that now, and it could just be me, but has the come up negatively, adversely impacted our sense that we are still fighting for something? Well, I think it definitely has. To the extent you get comfortable, you can get relaxed. There's mm -hmm. no question about that. But I see more of a generational divide than I do necessarily a wealth divide or the yeah. come up, as you say, mm -hmm. as in we haven't passed along the need to, to act in a group or concerned about concerns about our group. Um, I mean, and I see that with, uh, in particular, just to be specific, like Bernie Sanders supporters, there's so many more of them that within the Democratic Party are African American that I would venture would have been 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely the younger voters, but I don't know if they wouldn't be at the table but for Bernie Sanders or not. Good point. Yeah. Yep. I take a look at my kids and I, I kind of see uh, what, what you're speaking to. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a I've got a millennial and I've got a Gen Gen Z and you know, they have had different experiences than I had as a kid, even though my experiences were drastically different from my own parents. And so the exposure that they get, you know, living a suburban life, you know, living in such a manner where, you know, they feel as if the world is theirs. Mm -hmm. the, the, the interesting thing is when my daughter went off to, to UT, uh, you know, she went from kind of feeling like, you know, oh, it's going to be fine, it'll be great to all of a sudden, you know, uh, excuse me, <laughs> you know, I'm black and I got something I need to say, <laughs> you know, and I'm waiting on my son to get to that point too when he leaves home. And so, you know, there is this generational kind of um, covering that we've, we've, we've given our kids, you know, that they have to kind of see for themselves when they, when they get out in the world. And so I'm, I'm kind of witnessing that and seeing how, um, 
different it is for them when they go from an environment where mom and dad kind of, you know, knock down, you know, yeah. slay dragons for them. And then they, yeah. they suddenly get out there and they realize this, the dragon is real. <laughs> yeah. And, and the come up is not just financial, it's social. I mean, just think about the world that we lived in, the world our parents lived in, the world our grandparents lived in. Like, it's, it's full circle. It's social. It's economic. It's financial. You know, yeah. it's relational. It's all of those things that we constantly are reminding some of our young, you know, young brothers and sisters. Like, I mean, you hate to tell them the story about walking up the hill back, yeah. <laughs> backwards and in the, in the winter yeah. all the time. Whatever that is, it gets, it gets more interesting as you keep telling that story. But you hate to, but you have to. Like you hate to keep saying that, but you have yeah. to because they don't understand in many cases what it was like. They, they don't understand that. Even if we talk to our uh, kids who went to UT, we went to UT, like it's different than when I played basketball at UT. Totally. It's totally <laughs> different. And that wasn't 70 years ago. That was 30 years ago, you know, 30. So it's like, they don't understand that if we don't tell them and we don't help them understand, listen, guys, we are, we're still in the struggle. Things are still happening. Um, it's sexy to protest. It's what somebody told one of a millennial told me the other day, like, it's sexy to protest. Okay. I mean, go, then go fight for Brianna, go fight for whatever. Uh, <laughs> you know, never gets you out there getting educated and getting, you know, waging the war and being active and ignited by it, you know, go and do it. So, um, were you going to say something about that, Tracy? Yeah, I was just going to add to the conversation um, um, in terms of what you said, Sharon. I, I am the, I am the millennial, um, <laughs> so you are talking about me. But me and my yeah. mom, we had, we had this conversation, um, and she she expressed the same feelings in terms of like young people, y'all are just y'all aren't doing what you need to do. They're not getting out there educating themselves and stuff and stuff. And I, I was like, I I, I can see where you see that but um and also i just looking around at my peers and on facebook or whatever and how even our journeys have changed as we've gotten older so if mm -hmm. i was looking on facebook maybe like 10 years ago we weren't necessarily talking about voting and doing this stuff like that but now i'm just seeing so much like yeah. we got activism like i need to do this community garden we need to get out the vote so there is a change and that has to come with your own personal struggle yeah. so you've got to pay some bills and, and, yeah. and things like that but um in terms of the uh, the activism and the way we approach things too i think that that's generational because we social media social media babies so what would we do on social media we'll be like y'all are always on social media that's not really going to do anything but in a way that's the way we connect and, and build our collectives um and our coalitions and so i think in the interpretation of how we we go about this this journey of voting and figuring out what's right for us May, it may just look different. Um, I won't say that everybody gets there, but I will say that we we do get there as millennials. Was just like I gotta represent press because you know we're <laughs> thinking about these things. Respect, respect. respect. It just okay. it looks a little different for us sometimes. Um, may so I may comment on that. I just think there's always value in um, experiences, mm -hmm. and when young people today have to experience some of the and and firsthand yep. some of the brutality uh need for criminal justice reform mm -hmm. um being in a, an environment where they don't necessarily have access to health care COVID hits everybody gets wiped out you can't even go you know you can't go to the doctor because you can't afford to go to the doctor all of these things that have been fought for over the years are a result of you take one step forward and two steps back. There is no battle that ever stays won, period. And so the people who are experiencing these things now, who are young people, honestly, I'm, I'm like, if, that, if I have to find a silver lining in the cloud, it is you needed to see this. Yeah. You needed to go through it so that you have your own story, so that you have your own um, hurts and your own harm mm -hmm. that came to you and you don't have to hear about you know way back in the day when we did this and that and the other and all of that you know no you need your own experience yeah okay and so i think that you that you you were aware and your parents were aware fran back mm -hmm. when you said i thought we were aware you were mm -hmm. everybody depending on the generation and the year of what's happening 
experiences whatever they experience on their own and through their own lens and up against whatever um, societal restrictions are in place. So it's one thing to say you can go downtown and protest and walk through and nobody says anything. You know, it's a whole nother ball game when you would have gone down, protested, you couldn't have eaten in any of those establishments that you were walking right. in. Okay, yeah. do I go to the street today or do I go to the movies? Well, you know, if you never could have gotten in the movie in the first place. Okay, so everything has, has, its, has a, a lens through yeah. which it has to be viewed. Great point. Great point. So we can turn our attention now to will probably be the, I know we got some folks who are watching who may have some questions, but we're going to talk about the hot topics for this election. And this is some of the stuff that Ice Cube and some of his contemporaries were talking about. What are the things that should be on the table that we are not asking for, that we are saying to our elected officials, these are the things that we care about, right? What are some of those hot topics? And we can go around the room and talk about what you know one of those hot topics for you has to be a part of this election or is already a part of this election for you for the african-american community and we can start with you cheryl well i think criminal justice is foremost in everybody's mind we've seen the demonstrations we've heard about it and we have to push for policies that make a difference whether it's chokeholds de-escalation training we we just can't emphasize that to our young people enough you said just one <laughs> yeah, and, and you know what, but let's elaborate a little bit more because that's one of my hot topics. I mean, the over-incarceration of brown folks gets me up in the morning, gets me fired up every chance I get to talk about why we are incarcerated seven to eight times more than anybody else on the planet. So Cheryl, I'll throw a question at you. Someone who has had to, and if you're Black, you probably have had to deal with the incarceration of a loved one at some point in your life. Um, how does someone who's activated on this topic, what's one thing they can do to get involved? One thing. Well, for sure, they can contact the Legislative Black Caucus, and you can sign up to help with actually working on the issues from a volunteer standpoint. And of course, you can come to the public hearings and make comments and be active and let your, let your representatives know that it is important to you. And then, of course, there's so many organizations, but I'll put out there, I think Black Lives Matter is doing a good job. But we also don't need to forget our traditional uh, civil rights organizations like the NAACP or the Urban League, because they're active and they're, they're also addressing these issues. Great. Sharon? Um, yeah, I think Black women are going to lead the way. Um, this, this election, I, I tell everybody to just vote, vote like a Black woman and you're probably going to be, be fine. But um, we also have to take a look at education. Um, one thing this pandemic has made very clear is the technology gap for our kids and the fact that so many are struggling with the virtual school um, as a result of not having technology or skills to, to keep up with the, the virtual school. Um, and so that's something we need to, need to look at as well. I think as women, we need to look at disparities in healthcare. I know the legislature has, has addressed um, uh, maternal mortality in black in black women, but I'd like to see more focus also in the disparities and how we are treated and how care is dispensed to black women. You know, I shouldn't I shouldn't have to to go into a doctor's office and scream because I'm in pain on at a level ten for them to take me seriously. I should be able to calmly say my pain is at a level ten and have that be heard and received and and receive treatment, um, just like somebody who's a white woman could go in and, and, and receive treatment or, or diagnosis. So those, those are things that I think we need to be looking at. Demetrius? Well, I think that most of the protections that we have, our ultimate um, arbiter is, is the court. And when we couldn't rely on anything else, we could go to a court, particularly at the appellate level, and get redress. I mean, that's that's how we ended up with a number of the changes that have taken place over the last you know hundred years in the country. So I'm for busting up the good old boys club that decides who sits, who gets appointed, 
And that means that that bust, you got to bust up the Senate. You got to get the right folks in the House. You got to get the right president because that's who decides who gets nominated. So all of that to me impacts my life on such a daily basis. And I, and I have to have somewhere to go for relief. And I have no place to go for relief as long as you have folks who are not uh, inclined to grant relief and don't have that heart to do it. Uh, don't see a way clear in the language of the laws uh, to do it. So that's what's important to me. I'm, I'm as bad as all the other people who, who want to have their justice confirmed when they want their justice confirmed, because I can assure you, you know, I can make an argument that if the right person is sitting there that I want confirmed, I don't care when they come up, I want them confirmed. Yeah. Yeah. Then and there on the spot, as soon as possible. Do not delay. <laughs> it just doesn't happen to be. In a hurry. All of that. All yeah, of that. It, it just does not happen to be the person that's up right now. Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> Tracy, what about you? What's, what are the hot topics? A hot topic for me is black women in terms of employment opportunities, wage disparities. Um, black women, the rate, the unemployment rate for black women in Texas is 4.5%, and that's higher than any other race. And when we're talking about health, like you did, Sharon, and thinking about social determinants of health, health and the interactions in the hospital is just a piece of the puzzle. You have everything from education, you have the, the, the built environment, you have uh, wages and income. And so when we're talking about wages and income, Black women are often in some of the lowest paying jobs. And then you turn it around to COVID and you have an overrepresentation of Black women working as essential workers. And most of them are in the healthcare field. And who's out there helping people directly with healthcare? Nurses, residential care facility workers, and Black women are overrepresented in each of these areas. So we're talking about areas where necessarily they're not receiving the same benefits as say I would at, at, at a UT. And if we have lack of uh, access to health care insurance, and that's something that's on a ballot, that's really important. So all of these things are intertwined in terms of unemployment, job opportunities, it's all connected to benefits, connected to health. And so these are just all of the issues that I feel like are important. I'm on my, uh, my horn for Black women, because um, I study them a lot. But any of these issues for Black women is important, especially in terms of poverty and thinking about the level of poverty in Texas alone. So we're just disproportionately represented in these in these low wage jobs. And we definitely need to close the gap in terms of pay disparities. Okay. Uh, the big bird orange elephant in the room is looking at the democratic debates, the Republican debates, the, the tickets on both sides of those. You got some black people saying, well, you know, Kamala Harris is not really black. Stop trying to make me vote for her. She's not really a black woman. You got people saying, well, there's a Republicanization of black people, people who are going over to Donald Trump and that we're this divided vote. Let's just jump in and talk about the notion, the concept of a divided vote. As if we were monolithic to start off with, I know a long time ago we were all allegedly democratic, but what do you think about what's being said? What do you make of what's being said about the split black vote in the 2020 election? Anybody? Jump on in there. Well, we're not monolithic. Right. You know, there are permanent issues, not permanent friends. <laughs> you know. And so uh, just because one somebody fit the bill for you this time doesn't mean that somebody's gonna fit the bill for you the next mm -hmm. time. And I don't want anybody to presume what I might want to do or who I might want to support. Now, that said, um, to be critical of someone like Kamala Harris because she has a law enforcement background assumes that we don't care anything about law enforcement. There's so many assumptions that are being made that, that you know, we don't want any person in, 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 in <laughs> given that you know, somewhere in the range of 18% of African-American men voted for Donald Trump the last time, mm -hmm. you know, uh, this, this should come as no surprise that some of them are gonna vote for Donald Trump the last time. Some of that is sexism. Yep. Some of that is I, I wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton if she the last person in line because she is she. Yep. <laughs> I'm not voting for, okay? Yep. So, we're not monolithic. We, we have all the scars and, and do all the crazy things that other people do. We just don't have the luxury of doing it. But we, we can get crazy just like everybody else. That's the burden that, that the sisters bear. Black women, yeah. we never get a day off. We never get a chance to get crazy. 
We have to act like we have good sense when nobody oh, else in the world acts oh, like they have good sense. That's Always. A, that's a great point. I, I think I, I get upset when people talk about black voters as if we don't have sense to think for ourselves mm -hmm. and and that the way that we tend to vote in a block is not commonsensical. I mean that that, that there's just something we okay if, if this person is voting this way and they're black, I'm gonna vote that way. We have good sense. We know when to support and when not to support. And and history will tell you that. I mean, black voters were by and large Republican because that met our needs at the time. And when it was time to change, by and large by and large black voters changed. There have been black candidates that black folks en masse will not support. Herman Cain, you know, there there have been candidates that black folks just say, no, I don't think that's going to work for me. And, and we use our collective common sense to vote that way. And so, you know, I think, I think we don't give ourselves enough credit and we don't hold other people accountable for giving us the credit to think and reason when we cast our votes. I'll jump in here. I think that people don't realize the impact of our shared experiences. And to the extent that we have a block vote, that's just because of those shared experiences. It's not because we're married to any particular party. Mm -hmm. After all, Lincoln freed the slaves and a lot of gains were make, made during the reconstruction period. And I don't doubt that if the Republicans started to truly appeal to the African-American vote, we would go there. Absolutely. Because we're so far behind in all the things that we need and are important to our community. And this, for this idea that somebody's not really black, <laughs> that's just a kind of absurd notion to me. Uh, Kamala Harris has been involved in the African-American community. She went to Howard, she's an AKA, but she doesn't have to chant, uh, roll out her black credentials for us to know that. <laughs> we have seen her, uh, well, it's always a problem when you get black people being urged to attack another black person. And it's not because of their actual policies, but just because of some superficial matter. Yeah. So I think it's our shared experience that are important, that it's important to recognize. Gracie, you, you got anything on that? Yeah, I was actually gonna say, to the point that was made earlier on the importance of education, I think this is where this really comes into play in understanding the issues among black people and I do a lot of research on, on the Black community, and you all have stated that it's not monolithic. And I think that's important because as we start to do even more research, we need to understand that even within community, what the differences are and what the issues are. And that could keep us even more educated and, and make these um, voting decisions more nuanced in terms of helping people understand that, yes, people may vote different ways, but these are different experiences that are happening. You have the affluent, you have the elite, and then you have the lower income black people. They are all, not all monolithic. So there is going to be a difference of perspective. And it's actually kind of healthy because that's what we want, because we have to keep these dialogues going between the black community on different perspectives where we rub against each other, because that's kind of really only, the only way you can make the fire that's needed to keep the collective pushing for what we want to, to see for our communities. Before we move to final kind of next steps and now, you know, I call it what next. I want to talk about this, this, this thing that happens when people talk about their political stance. And, uh, and I'm really, you know, you guys have been very candid. Y'all have been very candid tonight about everything. But why is it that people are saying, how many friends have you lost on Facebook? How many people have unfollowed you on Facebook since you shared your political stance, who you're voting for, how you feel about things? Why is that conversation so polarizing? And we can go around the table for that. Why, why does this cause people to literally convulse, have such strong reactions when they hear your stance on, on specific issues? Well, I think we're at a place in history where people are skeptical of politicians and skeptical of politics. And it hasn't always been that way. It hasn't always been that way. And it's certainly dangerous for us as black people to take that attitude now, the mm -hmm. attitude of distrust for anything that you say, when we are, so many of our gains have been at the hands of government and no other industry or no other segment of the economy or the world. 
So we have to really be careful of turning people off for politics as black people. I think this digital era has had a lot to do with it too. There was a time when you could go to work with folks and work with them all day long, see them all week long and never know how they feel politically, yeah. never know how they vote, you know, but now you can, you can go online and you can see, oh, he's posting about that. Well, I never knew, I never knew you thought that way. And that, you know, that changes how I think about you, you know, when I see you during the day. And so um, our, our views, if you're active in social media, you know, what you share and what you post and, and, the things that you like and um, all of that is a, a, a big part of the portrait of you. And so friends and coworkers and people who may have been able to be polite before because they had no idea what you were really thinking. Now it's all laid out there. And so, you know, it's, it's a part of, you know, how you view the folks that otherwise you could have just, you know, been, been friendly and, um, you know, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it leads to, to this, this young people term cancel culture. Um, so we automatically just dismiss differences of opinion versus actually sitting down and have a dialogue about it. We're, we're debating and debate is good, but um, it's, it's, I think there's a, a distrust of difference in this moment because black people feel vulnerable and to, to see that you're supporting something that's not for my benefit, my good, cut you off. Um, and that's, it's a, it's a form of protection. Um, so that could be good and that could be bad in terms of, again, understanding what the other side is saying. Cause I, I like to know what the other side is thinking because I, I need to be informed on how, how I can, can react or, or be proactive towards it. But yeah, I think it, it's just the, the, that level of vulnerability. Like we're already in this pandemic in this time where we're seeing so many so black, black bodies being killed. And so for someone to be so far from you, it's like almost kind of maybe a self-preservation mentally also. So that's, that's another factor to, um, to think about. Right. Well, you know, we get, we get our news in, in our different uh, corners, like boxers, you know, mm -hmm. you can, you know, which station you watch, what angle they're going to come from. There's hardly even an opportunity to just kind of, the facts, ma'am, just facts. You don't hear the facts, ma'am, yeah. just the facts. You hear somebody's version of the facts, just the facts. And I think we have, um, I don't know that we ever, that everybody was ever that way. I take people as they are. I'm not trying to change you. I mean, I, you, you come the way you are, however that is, I can choose either deal with you right. or not deal with you. But I don't think it's my um, responsibility to try to change you, you know, my right or my duty to try to change you, because I think you have a right to be what you are, as you are, and think what you think the way you think it, you know, and that's the, maybe some of that's the lawyer, you know, coming out of me that, you know, everybody's got their right to their side or whatever the case is, and you, you know, you have to represent them or defend them, whether you like them or whether you don't, you know, in many instances, but uh, I think that there's some of that polarization, we just see it so, so much. Um, we cannot avoid it. Yeah, it's there for sure. Um, this has been this has been phenomenal. You know, it's been better than good. It's been phenomenal just to hear your takes, your where you are, what we can do. Because I'm a big okay. This was great. What can we do now? And so we're turning to that part of our time together where we, you know, go around the room and say, okay, what's next? What can we do to show up better? you know, whatever, wherever you fall in the political arena in terms of Democrat, whatever, Republican, Libertarian, whatever you are, what can we do as a people to show up better for, for us? And we can start with whoever wants to, to jump in there and just give your final thoughts on whether it's something you said tonight or something you just want to leave the folks who are watching with before we sign off. I'll start vote. I have my mask. So whenever I go out in public, I make sure everyone knows that you need to vote. Uh, making sure that you have a plan. So if you're voting by mail, making sure that you know that that deadline is October 23rd and getting it in early. If you, if you decide that you want to vote last minute, make sure you take that ballot with you so they can void it and you can vote in person. But just knowing where your polling places are. If you want to get actively involved, 
figuring out what the poll worker situation looks like for your specific county. I know that they have uh, poll worker positions. They typically play if, if, if some of the 16-year-olds the need money, they pay anywhere from $10 to $20 an hour, depending on your county. So if you're trying to think about getting your kids civically engaged, that may be an option that you take. But just making sure that you're informed. The League of Women Voters, they often have guides that, that, that list out the candidates in plain terms and they ask them some questions. So taking, taking the time to review those options and just to see what you're voting for on the ballot, but making sure that you're just prepared to take action and understanding the issues that you are looking to actually make a difference in with this, this particular election season. Good stuff. What's next? Vote, but also remain engaged. Don't stop there. Continue to follow the folks that you put in office and hold them accountable and let them know how you feel. And um, there are tools to do that. There, there are, there's a, a tool called ResistBot that you can text. And when there's an issue of importance, if you text um, to ResistBot, it can automatically send that text to your elected officials, state and federal. But you know, get engaged and stay engaged because you have to, you have to follow through. In addition to voting, I can't emphasize enough, not just being a part of the problem, but being a part of the solution and a part of the solution after you vote is like you said, being engaged, but it is also just expressing yourself and not shutting down when there is political dialogue. It's okay. To, to disagree with people and agree to disagree, but whether you're expressing yourself on social media and people don't like what you say, that doesn't matter. Keep saying it, keep talking, keep being engaged because we as a people, our voice has to be heard and it doesn't necessarily have to be a unified voice. It just needs to be a voice. I think um, making sure that we have plans to uh, implement and a diverse strategy to implement them. It's, it's one thing to, to march and uh, you know, take to the streets. It's one thing to go to different types of meetings. I call them the blood pressure meetings where you, know, you go and everybody pontificates about what they see wrong and what they're upset about. And then you leave after all day and there's no plan. There's nobody's got anything concrete that's going to happen. You just got your blood pressure up. That's what happened at the meeting. And I think the difference, and, and the Honorable John Lewis will, you know, was really good at pointing this out, um, is that when many of the civil rights activities were taking place, there was a plan, there was an end goal that we're gonna do this, and in the end, this is where we're trying to get. This is who we need to go to to get it. This is who we need to oppose to get it. And, and we know we can see steps one, two, and three, so we can see whether we're advancing. And that everybody can be involved in that process. Everybody's got a role to play. Somebody needs to be a flamethrower. Somebody else needs to be the one that folks go to to talk to because they don't wanna to have to deal with the flamethrower, right? Everyone has a role to play and we have to learn how to put people and, and accept people in those roles, get the best out of them that you can get out of them for the cause that you are trying to, to um, advocate for, and then move on and accept that there's some things that you're gonna win and there's some things gonna take you a little bit longer to win. But have a plan, know that you're going someplace and you're not just letting off steam uh, or deciding that that's the sexy thing to do at the time. And I, and I will just, I will say two things. Number one, the, the most important thing for me is, is to know that you matter. You matter. Because when you don't believe you matter, then you see no need to get engaged, to get ignited, to do anything different than what you're doing. So you matter. And that means your vote matters. Getting involved in the thing leading to my next one is like, do the one thing, just do one thing. That's what I do every day. I go, listen, I'm gonna get one thing done today. I'm not gonna get 20 of these things done on my to-do list. I'm gonna get one thing done today. And this is my one thing. So I would ask you to, I would implore you to approach this as, you know, what is the one thing I care about? I've already said, I care about the alarming rate at which we are incarcerated. It boils my blood. So I care about that. That is the one thing as I listen to everybody on this panel, 
that is the one thing that I've been activated on for the past 20 years, and I'm going to continue to do my one thing. So pick the thing you're passionate about, the thing you want to see changed in your community, with Black folks, whatever, whatever it is for you, pick that one thing, work on that one thing, focus on that one thing, hold your elected official accountable on that one thing, and we'll see where we go for the next go one. For it. Anybody Wait. else? I will say that uh, uh, hands, uh, give a hand to the uh, Black Alumni Network uh, for the University of Texas for doing this. Uh, when I arrived at UT, there were, uh, I was an orientation advisor at the end of, my, end of the, my sophomore year. There were 537 people who called ourselves Black who walked on the campus. Um, I understand the numbers up a little bit more now. But um, it's always good to be able to assemble with people that you've had a shared experience with. Um, when, when I went to UT, my pastor said, don't go to UT because I don't like black people. I said, well, that's where I need to be. And, and where uh, we got there and I started a choir, that Inner Visions Choir. And the reason for that was that we'd go down the dorm and I'd go play the piano, a little bit of playing. One of my other friends would come play the piano. And for everything that we thought was wrong with the experience that we may have been having, with the fact that we'd look around and see a whiteness and wouldn't see anybody who looked like us, the one thing we had in common was our music. Didn't matter where you came from. You went to somebody's church and you knew those songs and we would sit down there and play. And when we went to um, Mama Durr and said, well, why don't, you, why don't you guys go become a student organization? I said, well, we don't want the white people telling us what to do. <laughs> they might try to tell us what to do and what we have to sing and how we have to act. And she said, yeah, it doesn't have to be like that. So she, you know, she found this place for us to practice. And I went and filled out the paperwork. We became a student organization. 125 or so African-American students out of the 500 who were on campus were at that rehearsal. Okay. We had that in common. We will find what we have to do to survive. We are going to survive. We survived the middle passage. We can survive anything. Okay. So just, just, just hang in there and keep it together. The Black Alumni Network, because you're doing something good here. Okay. Yeah. Hook them. Okay. You're doing something good. Thank you very much for Thank allowing us to participate. Appreciate Thank you. you very much. Have a great week um, and hook them.